Welcome to the Whitefields Community Church Podcast. For more information about our church, including location and service times, visit us online at whitefieldschurch.com. If you are blessed by this message, please consider sharing it with others and leaving a rating or review on your favorite podcast app. It's actually a huge privilege, to be honest with you. Um, anytime a pastor shares his church with another pastor, I mean, pastors love their people, they love their churches, and they don't want anybody to mess them up. And so this is, for me, Nick's way of saying, I don't think Sean will mess up my church too bad today. So I'm thankful for that. Uh, pretty excited about the opportunity to teach you guys today. Uh, let's open up with a word of prayer, though. Uh, Heavenly Father, so thankful for your word and this opportunity to be able to go through the word with a a group of people who loves you. Oh Lord, we know that your Holy Spirit is indwelling us and in our midst, that your Holy Spirit is our true teacher and will take the word preached and applied it to our lives in just the right place. And so, uh, Father, we're asking today that you would reveal yourself through your word and help us to to learn the lessons that Paul has for us here, uh, that we would have this opportunity to uh, really put as the foundation of our faith, of our life, of our ministry to one another, uh, this idea of love. And so, Lord, would you reveal this to us, we pray, in 1 Corinthians 13. And in Jesus' name, amen. All right, we will be in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It's kind of a a nice deal uh, because when I go and teach someplace else, I never know what I'm supposed to talk about unless they give me a specific passage. And they didn't give me a specific passage. So what I do in that circumstance is I say to myself, well, what would I have taught at my church this Sunday? And so we are just finishing up 1 Corinthians. And so last week I did 1 Corinthians 12. So voila, you get 1 Corinthians 13. So then I go back and I listen to what you guys have been doing. And it's been this study on the spirit-filled life. And then he did 1 Corinthians 12 just two weeks ago on spiritual gifts. So it really just kind of flows nicely together. It's almost as if God is in control. It's almost like that. Um, uh, But I I actually love that. Uh, You really can't do a good study of spirit-filled living, of spiritual gifts, uh, without asking the question that Tina Turner asked when she said, what's love got to do, got to do with it? And that's what we're going to be looking at today. The Beatles tried to give her at least a partial answer when they said, all you need is love, love is all you need. And so then this group, uh, this guy Hathaway comes along from Trinidad, and he says, well, if love's all you need, then what is love? And he came to his own conclusion. He decided that love is, baby, don't hurt me, don't hurt me, no more. And that really is surprisingly close to the outline of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. You'll you'll recognize that in Corinth, they had kind of this ongoing struggle of division in the church. Uh, I believe what was happening in Corinth was this. There was an amazing movement of God going on in that church. The Holy Spirit was powerfully working in and through the people. All the spiritual gifts were active. Everything was going great. But because of the amazing things that God is doing in that particular church, some of the people in that church weren't just super gifted. They were super arrogant which led to a lot of division in their church. And you see this theme of division just all throughout this book. Paul's trying to answer some questions of theirs. You know, he starts the book out by dealing with these bad reports that he's gotten about the church. He deals with those the first six chapters. And then in chapter seven, he begins answering questions from a letter that he received from them. But so many of these things just go back to the divisive nature of this church. In the first four chapters, they were dividing over who their leaders were. Some were saying, I am of Paul. I am of Apollos. I am 
name of Cephas. And a couple of them got it right and said, actually, we're of Jesus. Have you heard of that guy? And so there's just all these different ways that they could divide as a church. And then in chapter five, they're divided over the issue of sin. How do we deal with this man in our midst who's invested in sin? Do we deal with him? Do we leave him be? Do we kick him out? How do we deal with that? The church was divided over that. They were divided literally by lawsuits in chapter six. Paul says, I've, you've even got lawsuits among yourselves. Could you imagine going to a church where people are just suing each other because they disagree? That was the church in Corinth. And yet they had all these amazing spiritual gifts. In chapter seven, they're, div they're uh, divided over the issue of divorce of all things, right? That happens. Uh, so they had marriage, divorce, singleness. He's trying to deal with how all these different views kind of come together. Uh, in chapters eight, nine, and 10, they were divided over the issue of whether or not they could eat meat, sacrifice to idols. It was just one thing after another with this church. Then you get to chapter 11. They're divided over whether or not you should or should not wear head covering. And this is the kicker for me. At the end of chapter 11, they're even divided over communion because he says that there are people in the church that are actually showing up for communion for the purpose of getting drunk, which is why now we get communion out of these little bitty cups. So that's no longer an issue. They are not shot glasses. This is not an issue that we deal with anymore, but that was a struggle that they had. Just they found one reason after another to be divided as a church and spiritual gifts is no different. It seems what had happened is that there was a group of people in the church who believed that their spiritual gift was the best spiritual gift. And the way that God had gifted them was the most important to the church. And it created almost like a class system or a caste system within that church. There were a few people who were gifted in certain ways that just said, oh, yeah, it's really God's using me more. It's probably because I'm more spiritual than you. I am actually more Christian than you, as it turns out. And just kind of having, finding these ways to take these amazing gifts that God had given them and they had turned them into a dividing point. It's a terrible thing to have happen, but I do think we have to watch that today. As you see people who are gifted in different things, it sometimes comes with it a little bit of pride and a little bit of arrogance. Now, let me just give you two quick examples of how this might work in a church today. Uh, the first one I think is the most obvious in any church where you can see a problem of giftedness leading, leading to pride is the gift of teaching. Now, how do I know that the gift of teaching gets lifted up above other gifts in the church? I'm literally standing up on a stage above all of you looking down and all of your chairs have been tilted so you can see me. <laughs> like this is the gift. And everybody wants the gift of teaching, right? That's kind of the way that seems to work out. But the reality is this doesn't happen except for the fact that there's all these people with the gift of service that are all around this building doing things right now, serving behind the scenes, and they don't get the credit, they don't get the pride, and they don't get lifted up as much. But every one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit is valuable and important and builds up the body of Christ, the church. We need all of these gifts. And I think that's really the issue that was happening there. Uh, the second issue I'm going to use or talk about, the gift that is a problem, I think, sometimes is the gift of tongues. And I'm picking on that one specifically because that's, I think, what was the real problem in Corinth, that those who were speaking in tongues felt like they were somehow more spiritual than everybody else. And you can actually see this played out a little bit in the church today. Uh, there are those who would believe and actually would even say this to you. There's entire denominations built on the concept. They say, if you don't speak in tongues, you're either not saved or you're not baptized in the Holy Spirit. And this to me is maddening because literally it says very clearly in chapter 12, verse 30, 
All do not have the gift of healings. All do not speak with tongues. All do not interpret. It literally says that. It's like the easiest thing to refute in the history of the church, the place where he introduces the gift of tongues. It literally says not everybody's going to have that gift. And yet there are people who will actually say, you're just probably not a believer then. You're probably not gifted like I am by the Holy Spirit. It's just this kind of divisive nature that slips into the church. So uh, let's look at how Paul deals with it. Ultimately, what he's going to be saying uh, is that spiritual gifts that aren't fueled by love are pretty much worthless uh, because love itself is the thing that fuels all of our gifts. So dividing up this chapter, the first three verses, uh, he's going to to lay out that differentiation there uh, that the spiritual gifts need to be fueled by love. Uh, He'll then go on from there in verse four through that first clause in verse eight to give us some of the characteristics of love, both positive and negative. And he'll finish it up by saying essentially that the, the gift of love is the greatest gift of all. So Verse one seems like a good place to start this chapter. That was a joke. It says, if I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned but do not have love, it profits me nothing. He's dealing specifically with spiritual gifts, tongues, prophecy, knowledge, faith, giving. He's taking these spiritual gifts and he's saying, if you have those spiritual gifts, but you exercise them in any way except for to love other people, You're just like that kid in fifth grade at orchestra practice or band practice whose one job is to clang the cymbals together at the end. And everybody's kind of just trying to watch their kid learn how to play the piccolo or the cornet or the trumpet or whatever it is they've been assigned as an instrument. And they come to the concert and they're listening and there's this kid back there. He's like, but this is my one job. I'm going to clash these cymbals. And it's the loudest, most annoying thing that happens the whole night. And he's so proud. You're like, you did one thing, man. You like clapped. Everybody can do that. You just happen to have big things in your hands. But he's so proud because it was the loudest noise. That's what it's like when somebody uses a spiritual gift, but they use it without loving the people they're ministering to. That's that difference there that he's looking at. And we have to be careful that when we're using or exercising spiritual gifts, we're doing it as a matter of ministering to, building up, and expressing love to other people. They're not given to us for our benefit. They're given to us for the benefit of other people. When that love isn't there, it becomes very, very obvious. The next example he's going to use, he's using the gift of prophecy, the gift of knowledge, and the gift of faith there in verse 2. And he says, even if you have uh, the, the gift of faith where you can even remove mountains, think of how powerful that gift is, that you can tell a mountain to get up and move from here to here. That gift of faith, right? Like that powerful of faith, but you don't have love. He says, your gift is nothing. It's just nothing. His next example there in verse 3, even if I give all my possessions to feed the poor. If I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Even if I surrender everything I have, it's of no value to me personally 
if I don't do it out of love. That that's gotta be that kind of one core thing that really leads and is the foundation on which all of our spiritual gifts are exercised. That's what he's trying to get across to this church here. Uh, it really is, again, I think it's a pretty obvious thing, but uh, we, can, we can think of examples of people who love to give to charity, but they only want to give if there's some sort of plaque or something at the end of it. Like, oh, I'm going to give so much money to charity this year. Look, my name's going to be higher than everybody else's name, right? Because I gave more, it should be in a bigger font. Hey, I'm going to give all this money to charity this year, but I want to make sure I'm in the gold club, not the bronze club. Their whole purpose in giving is not so much to help the people they're giving, it's to build themselves up. That's not love. That's the opposite of how we use the gifts that God has given us. It's not that God won't do things with those gifts. He's just saying, I give you no credit for what you did in those positions. When that was your motivation, when your motivation was to build yourself up, even this idea of surrendering yourself, however you want to look at it, in all of these things that the motivation behind our surrender should be love. And we learned that from somebody else. We learned that from God himself, whose motivation for surrendering his son was his love for us. I'll take you to Romans 5.8. It's this discussion here in Romans 5.8. He says this, God demonstrates his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. How did God communicate to the entire world that he loved them? He surrendered his son. He didn't surrender his son so people would go, look, God's cool. He surrendered his son because he wanted us to know that he loved us. That was his one purpose, his one function in accomplishing that. Uh, we'll see it again in 1 John, by the way, if you go towards the end of your Bible, 1 John chapter 4, he's going to repeat that same concept, but he's going to tag something onto the end of that. So let's listen here in verse 9. By this, the love of God was manifested in us, made known to us personally, that God sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. But then in verse 11, he says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Because he demonstrated the process, the motivation. He first loved us, which set the example for us to love other people. That's the way we're supposed to minister. And really, love is kind of saturated throughout the entire scriptures. Uh, it's interesting to me, we call this the love chapter in 1 Corinthians 13. Well, 1 John 4 that I just read from, the word love comes up in that one chapter 30 times. That's the real love chapter, right? And its whole point is that God is love, and from God we get this demonstration of love, this example of love, love that we would follow. It has to be the motivation behind our gifts. It has to be the motivation behind why we minister to and serve other people. It has to be our love for God and our love for other people. Uh, Paul often connects his teachings to the life and the work of Jesus. Uh, I think that's pretty clearly seen here. Uh, Jesus made this comment. They asked him the question, what is the greatest commandment? And he says, I'll do you one better. I'll give you two. He says, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But the second is just like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And then he says this fascinating thing. All the law and all the prophets depend on these two things. So everything that was written down in scripture for us was written down in such a way that they depend on the idea of loving God or loving your neighbor. So when we approach the scriptures, 
One of the ways we can filter through those scriptures is to think, how does this help me love God or see that God loves me more? And how does this help me learn to love other people more, the people in my life? That has to be the fuel behind every ministry we do, even the ministries of the spiritual gift. There's no denying that if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are filled with the Holy Spirit. That's very clearly laid out in Scripture. There's no denying that everyone who's filled with this Holy Spirit has a gift of the Holy Spirit. The point Paul wants you to understand is all of you are gifted with the Holy Spirit for the purpose of loving other people. That's why he gives you gifts of the Holy Spirit. So you can demonstrate the love of God to other people. Paul will bring this concept up again at the end of 1 Corinthians in chapter 16, verse 14. He says this, he says, let all that you do be done in love. Everything that you do should be motivated by that idea of love. And so you're thinking to yourself, 1 Corinthians 13, I've heard this before. Yes, you've heard this at every wedding you've been to, but I assure you it wasn't written for the purpose of weddings. It's valuable and useful in weddings, but that's not why he wrote this. He wrote this so that they would understand as the church in Corinth how to operate and minister in love. And he's gonna give us now the characteristics of what that love is. Listen to this in verse four. Love is patient, love is kind, It is not jealous. Love does not brag and it is not arrogant. Love does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. It is not provoked. Love does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never Fails. He begins to now list out these 16 characteristics of what love looks like. Uh, but it's fascinating as you kind of read through it. A couple of things happen. The first is he says it in two ways. There's the positive, this is, is what love is, this is what love does. And then there's the negative, the other side of that. This is not love, and this is not what love does, which really divides it into two positive and two negative things. Love is, love isn't, love does, love does not. So I've done this for years. Um, When I do premarital counseling, I'm going to try to do this without spilling communion juice up here, right? Um, I'll I'll ask uh, the husband and wife to come together for premarital counseling, and I'll go through this whole description of what love is and what it's supposed to look like. And I tell them, I need you to take a piece of paper, and I need you to fold it into four pieces. And right away, we've already got a fight, right? Because one of them is going to take the piece of paper, and they're going to like fold it in half, and they're going to fold it in half again. They're like, it's in fourths. And the other one's going to go, no, that's so foolish. You're going to fold it this way, and then you're going to fold it over this way. That's how you get fourths. And then somebody actually last service said, oh, no, no, no. Then there's this guy who folds it into, <laughs> into diamonds. But either way, I ask him to just fold it into four pieces so that we can look at this whole concept of love as it's defined here by taking those phrases, love is, love is not, love does, and love does not. And I, I divide them out like that. And I have them place the words in each of those sections so they can read this now almost like a job description. Well, for Christians in service, This is your job description. This is the motivation. This is the fuel. This is the foundation on which you do all of your service. So when we take those verses we just read, we start with what love is. And it's two things. It's the first two things he mentions. This is what love is. Love is patient. Love is kind. 
It's really as simple as that. I love the way the word uh, patient is described in the Amplified, by the way, because uh, it really gives a new meaning for me to the word patient. Uh, it describes patient as enduring with serenity. That's patience, which is exactly the opposite of what I thought patience was. Patience for me is, okay, there's this thing I'm not supposed to do yet, and I will wait my turn, but I will not be happy about it. And I'll just sit up there, and I'll, on the outside, I'll be waiting patiently, but inside, I am stewing in my juices. Why is this taking so long? When's my turn going to be? And at the end of that, I'll have waited my turn and say, man, I'm so patient. That is not patience. <laughs> That's just slight annoyance at your circumstances, but not ref by refusing to go against your circumstances. Patience is in enduring with serenity. That's the guy at the DMV. You're in line. You know you're going to be there for two hours. And there's always this one guy there that's just so happy to be there. Oh, look at all the people here today. It's just so wonderful. How are you today, neighbor? And you're like, what's wrong with this guy? How can you have serenity in this circumstance? He has real, honest, sincere patience. Well, that's what love is like. It's patience and it's kindness. Think about every relational problem you've ever had. Every one of them. If in those circumstances, the two people involved in the fight or the struggle or the argument or whatever it was could have just exhibited patience and kindness, doesn't that kind of end the argument? And now you're no longer arguing you're working together to solve the problem. And that's simple. It's so simple. That's just what love is. So if you say that you love your kids, if you say that you love your wife or your husband or your neighbor or your savior, it means that you will patiently and kindly interact with them. And that means when you walk in the house after having a terrible day at work and you trip over the shoes that were left right inside the door, everybody walks there, you won't blow your top <laughs> and freak out. You'll pick up the shoes, you'll move them to the side, you'll take the little rug rat that left them there <laughs> and gently say to them, son, would you please remember to put your shoes over here? patience and kindness. Well, yeah, but I've done that before and it didn't work. And that's where the endurance part of patience is. They wouldn't call it patience if it happened instantly. You have to keep reminding them. And wives, you have to keep reminding your husband of these things. It's the patient endurance. That's the definition of love. So if that's what love is, what is love not? It says then love is not, and there's a list of things. Love is not jealous, arrogant, or provoked. I love provoked. Provoked basically says, I will not get into a fight with you today. Love is not provoked. Love will not get in a fight with you. Love will not be overly sensitive. Is another way that's translated in another translation. Love is not going to be overly sensitive. Love's not going to allow its feelings to be hurt. That's not what love is. By the way, some of you, if you think back about some of the relationships you've been in in the past, with immature people, jealousy, arrogance, always ready to fight. That's not love. That's not what it looks like. 
And if you're the jealous, arrogant, easily provoked type, you don't love your spouse. You just don't. You have some work to do. You have to grow in those things. It's a difficult thing, but that's the way it describes it for us. And then there are the things that love does. These are the actual things. This is the to-do list of love. Love does rejoice with the truth. Love will celebrate the truth every time. Love does bear all things. I love that word bear there because it reminds me, at least the men would maybe recognize this, maybe some of the women, but it reminds me of this whole idea of a load-bearing wall. Like when your wife says, let's take that wall out and you say, I can't, that's a load-bearing wall. It means that wall is holding the roof up. You can't take that out. Love holds the roof up. Love bears all things. Love believes all things. Your first instinct when you love somebody is to believe them. It doesn't mean they won't ever be proved wrong, but even if they've been proved wrong a hundred times, the next time they come with you, you're going to start by believing them. You're going to do your due diligence and exercise and look for the truth, right? But you start with believing them. You can't always, you don't always assume that they're wrong because they've been wrong the last 70 times. You always start with belief. Love hopes all things, always expecting that things will get better. That's what love looks like. And then lastly there, love endures all things, even if it's a pastor you don't know, preaching longer than you had anticipated. In love, you will endure all things. And then lastly, these are the things that love does not do. From that list there, love does not brag. Love does not act unbecomingly, which means improper. Love does not seek its own, which means it's just not selfish. That's not what love is. Love is not selfish. Love does not take into account a wrong suffered. You no longer get to keep a list of all the ways you've been wronged. You don't get to keep that list. That's not love. Love forgives the things on that list because we were first forgiven by Jesus Christ. And then love does not rejoice in unrighteousness. And this one's very important, by the way, because the world has this messed up version of love. Now, they say to love means I have to agree with everybody else on everything. That's not what love is. Love will never rejoice in unrighteousness. I cannot celebrate your sin with you. But as a sinful person, I can still patiently hope for the best. I can still be kind to you. That's love. But celebrating your sin, that's not love. It's the opposite of love. That's something love would never, ever do because love, in fact, celebrates or rejoices in those things that are true. So we have all of those things and they kind of serve for us now uh, as a list, a to-do list to prepare yourself to serve in ministry. Whatever it is that you're going to be doing, maybe you come to church as a Sunday school teacher, maybe you come to make coffee, maybe you come and help be as a janitor, you pick up the trash, maybe you come to preach. Whatever it is that you do, you have to check your motivation before you get into that ministry. This is a way that you can check your motivation and say, when I go in the door, these are the things that I'm going to do. When I get in there, I will be patient with people. I will be kind with people, even the little people. I will rejoice when the truth is taught. I will put up with all kinds of foolishness. I will believe the best of the people that I'm ministering to. I will hope the best for those people and I will endure all kinds of stuff. 
And here's the things I'm not going to do today. I'm not gonna be jealous because somebody got more praise for the service that they did. I'm not gonna be arrogant and pretend that my service was more important than somebody else's. I'm not gonna be provoked into a fight. I'm not gonna be overly sensitive about things. I'm not gonna brag. I'm not gonna act inappropriately. I'm not gonna be selfish. I'm not gonna remember all the times that somebody forgot to do the thing that they forgot to do six weeks in a row. And I am not gonna celebrate when people are celebrating their unrighteousness. I'm not gonna celebrate with them. And you can go through that just as a, as a setup for your brain to prepare you to minister in the gifts of the spirit, to minister in the body of Christ, to serve other people, to edify them. You can also, by the way, look at that as an after action report after you've had the fight, after you've had the bad day, after you've had the relationship struggle. Go back and look at the thing and forget about what it was you were arguing about and ask yourself, not was I right or wrong, that can be dealt with separately, but ask yourself in that scenario, was I loving in the way I responded to them so that we could deal with the actual issue? Now, here's the, this struggle. We want to judge everybody else. I'd like to give you a critique on how you handled that fight with me. You weren't very loving. You weren't very kind. You weren't patient with me. That's not what we're doing. We're doing the opposite of that. We're turning and looking at ourselves because we're not responsible for their actions. We're responsible for our actions before our Savior. We want to represent him on this earth in our marriages, in our homes, in our families, in our churches, in our workplaces. We represent him. And if God is love then people should recognize that in me. So as an after-action report, in that scenario, was I kind? Does sarcasm count as unkind? Eee. Was I patient? Yeah, as long as they went quick enough. Like thinking through, how did I respond? And if not, if you find that you didn't respond well, you go back and you ask for forgiveness. Again, you're not necessarily surrendering your side because you might've been right. But sometimes being right isn't the issue. It's handling the issue rightly. So to go into that circumstance and say, hey, look, in this scenario, even though I still believe I was in the right, I believe I handled you entirely wrong because I love you. And I don't want to be rude to you. I don't want to be arrogant around you. I don't want to pick fights with you. I love you and I want the best for you. Paul even talks about that in his preaching, by the way. He's, he's, he's writing to Timothy and he says, the purpose of our instruction is love from a pure heart. It was even behind why he was teaching people to love. It was, it was teaching people the word. It was because he loved them, because God had loved him. It's just putting all of those pieces together and that works into that scenario of how we operate in our spiritual gifts. So we pick it up now. We're going to finish this up uh, because I only have a couple minutes left. Uh, otherwise, I would just keep going because it is the last service and there's not a service after you guys. So what's the big hurry, right? <laughs> but in verse eight, after it says, love never fails, and this is important. I actually write it this way when it says, love never fails. I write it in the middle and I write this. This type of love never fails. This type of love. Not the world's type of love. Baby, don't hurt me. But this type of love, the patient, kind love that's described in scripture, that's demonstrated in Jesus Christ, that was given to us by God, that by the way is a fruit of the Holy Spirit in our life, that kind of love, long-term, it doesn't fail. Even if you spend your whole life loving somebody that never responds to it, 
God will look at that and say, well done, good and faithful servant. Thank you for loving the one that nobody else wanted to love. And that one will never be able to say they didn't understand the sacrificial love of God because they saw it reflected in you. And Paul's gonna use that as an illustration actually here in verse eight as we continue on. He says, but if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child and think like a child and reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully just as I have also been fully known. But now faith, hope, love, abide these three. But the greatest of these is love. He's making his point here. Look, every spiritual gift is temporary. It's temporary in the moment, but it's also temporary long-term. In the moment, if I give somebody a gift of, uh, if I speak prophecy into somebody's life, we're told in 1 Corinthians 14 that that is for the purpose of edification, encouragement, and consolation. That's why we speak prophecy into people's lives. But if I do that, once they're encouraged, that gift is done. I don't need that in my everyday, every conversation. It's a very temporary for a moment type gift. The same is true of the gift of tongues. If I have these moments where I can pray in angelic languages, it's great, but I can't talk like that all the time or nobody would understand what I'm talking about. It's a, it's a temporary for a point of time, for a purpose. Love all the time. You're supposed to love people before you prophesy to them, in your prophecies, and after you prophesy to them. You're supposed to love people before you serve them, while you're serving, and even when you're done serving them. The love continues on. But it's another way that, that, that spiritual gifts are temporary, and that's this. Um, I believe that when Jesus returns, spiritual gifts are no longer necessary to edify and build people up because we'll actually have Jesus right there with us. We'll be in the presence of God. You see why that becomes more important. Here's how he says it here. He talks about how the partial things, the, the gifts of prophecy will be done away with, the gift of tongues will be done away with, uh, the gift of knowledge will be done away with. We right now, we know in part, we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away with. Now, church history is very split on what it means there by the perfect. But I think he gives us the answer in verse 12, because he says, now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. When the perfect comes, we will see face to face. So at the return of Jesus Christ, all those who've confessed Christ as Lord will be brought into God's kingdom and we will be right there with him. We won't need to build each other up anymore because God himself will be there to build us up to strengthen us and perfect us and encourage us. It's right there. It's all done for us in that. But until such time, we have to do these things until the perfect comes. Some people believe that the, when it says when the perfect comes meant when the Bible was finally codified and finished. And at that point, all spiritual gifts stopped. I just don't happen to believe that. I just happen to believe that um, for some people, spiritual gifts whether because of the gifts they have or because of the misuse of gifts, spiritual gifts are just kind of off. You just can't touch them. You just stay away from spiritual gifts. That just goes into weirdness. 
or they just haven't experienced them in the same way. And so they look at those things and they say, all of those things are just a distraction from the word of God because they love the word of God. And look, I agree, the word of God is amazing. I have nothing to say apart from this word. This is all I got. I'm a one trick pony. This book, that's it, right? I think the word of God is perfect, but I don't think the word of God is the perfect that I will see face to face. The problem with, I think, some people is they have a weird view of the Trinity. See, we have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. But I think some people have said, no, it's more like God the Father. I mean, they wouldn't say this, but this is what their actions say. We have God the Father, and we have God the Son, and we have God the Holy Bible, just like you. You see how they kind of swap those things out there? I don't need the Spirit because I have the Scripture. Well, you can't substitute the Scripture for God because this, as cool as it is, is not God. He's basically telling them there in verse 11, it's time for them as Christians to mature to grow up. He says, you used to think like a child, live like a child, reason like a child. But when you become a man, it's time to act like a man. And he's saying, you who are spiritual, just because you have great spiritual gifts doesn't mean you can't still be immature. It's time to stop being immature and be mature by showing your love for all the people that you minister to and recognizing that every spiritual gift that God gave you was given to you for one purpose and one purpose only, to be invested in other people, not to build you up, but to build them up. That's the way he intends us to walk in the spiritual gifts that he's given us. And so that's where he tells us there in verse 13, faith, hope, love, these three remain. These things are gonna continue on, but the greatest of these is love that this should be the foundation and the fuel behind everything that we do. And it really is the correction to the division that they were experiencing there in Corinth. And again, all of that was learned through Jesus Christ. There was a division between God and man. And God wanted to put an end to that division. He wanted to reconcile the people to himself. And he accomplished that by demonstrating his love on the cross and we actually remember that in communion. And it's really cool. Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians 10, uh, about this interesting thing that happens in communion. 1 Corinthians 10, he says this. I speak as to wise men, you judge what I say. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? This is the cup of blessing. It's killing the division as we come together in love and share in the blood of Jesus Christ. And then he says, is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. He's telling us that as we remember the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the intent of that is to draw us together. Communion should not divide us it should take all of those who have been loved by God, who return that love in faith and bring us together as one in the body of Christ and we partake in the body and the blood of him in communion. So when he gives the instructions then for communion in 1 Corinthians 11, and he says, Jesus gave thanks for these things and he said, this is my body and this is my blood. He was giving this as a way not just to remember him, but to remember what was accomplished at the cross, not just the forgiveness of our sins, but the 
gathering together of one body of people, the people of God. So I'm going to pray and give thanks for the elements here of communion, and then we will take it together after I pray. Heavenly Father, I am so thankful for your son, Jesus Christ. I'm so thankful for the gift of salvation. Lord, I am thankful that he was willing to surrender his life in obedience to you and in love for us. Lord, we would add to that just the powerful things that were accomplished at the cross. We recognize that we were forgiven of our sins because of the work that was done at the cross, that all of our sins have been cast as far as the east is from the west, buried in the sea of forgetfulness, thrown behind our back, and trampled under our feet. We recognize that the certificate of debt listing out all of our sins was marked paid in full, and that now you, the all-knowing God, remembers our sins no more. Father, we're so thankful that you've reconciled our relationship with you and that now we can stand before you as a people who have been made righteous, as righteous as your son, Jesus Christ. For all those things, we remember him and worship him today by eating this bread and drinking this juice. And Lord, we pray these things in your son's memorable name. You have been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Make sure to tap the subscribe button if you would like to have new messages delivered to your device every week when they are released. If you have been blessed by this message and would like to support our ministry, you can do so by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or by giving a donation to our church on our website at whitefieldschurch.com.